Blog Talk Radio. It's that time again. <laughs> Sunday already, can you believe it? I know. But you know what? It's Sunday evening, and so you need to sit back and just relax, and let's talk about space. Let's look up in the stars and just, you know, imagine. Or we can think about it and say, man, we really need to get up there. <laughs> so we're talking man space. This is the next space show with Alan Joe, and of course, this is KBOD Radio. And let's get started. As soon as I find my, <laughs> my demo. Here we go. Why don't you come on out to the Hey Girls Americana Radio Show, hosted by Song River and Carol Pacey of Carol Pacey and the Honey Shakers. All coming to you live on KWOD Independent Internet Radio, broadcasting from the Ice House Tavern in Phoenix, Arizona. All sound recorded and mixed by Vintage Note Records. Come on out, check out the show, and then visit the website at blogtalkradio.com backslash KWOD radio. We'll see y'all out there. Okay, it is the beginning. Of, can you believe it's March 1st already in here? Didn't we just have New Year's? I mean, really. So let's talk about the calendar real fast before we get started. Let you guys like say, hey, you know it's seven o'clock. It's time to listen to the next space show. Until then, we wanted to talk about what's going on. Hang on here, let me find my <laughs> Oh Space Show. Yeah, ignore that people. I don't find it yet. This the show, Seth? I think so. Yeah. Looks like it. Woo! 29 weeks of this stuff, man. 29 weeks, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's happy year. Man. I don't know if I can stand it. Another half. But until then, let's see what we got going on here. Well, you know, we'd like to thank all the teachers that we met out at the state capitol yesterday. We were excited to be out there. And, uh, you know, welcome to all those new readers that we have. Those We had uh, got our books out there, so we were out fun. And, of course, they were teachers and they were readers, so those are the best kind. What else we got coming up? We've got Roundtable Publishing, well, other than today, of course. We've got Roundtable Publishing on Wednesday the 4th at 7 p.m., and that's going to be with me at Denny's at 1150 South Country Club Drive. $5 is all it takes to sit down and pick my brain, find out if, you know what you can in one hour <laughs> in between eating. Uh, about publishing and about writing, about editing, whatever you want to ask me. Hey, you're paying for my dinner, so hey, you can ask me whatever you want. I won't get into the into the whole date thing, okay? 
But we've got a couple of people already coming out, and uh, so that should make it interesting. And, and again, you know, we have only limited room. Um, you know, tables at Denny's are only about five or six people that can actually sit there. So uh, it'll be nice and cozy, and you guys have all the time that you can talk to me. Um, Wild West Steampunk Convention. Can you believe it's all that time that year already? Yeehaw! Starting on the 6th, 7th and the 8th. That's next weekend in Tucson. Old Tucson, and what a, what a place to have it. Because, you know, the atmosphere is just so perfect for the Old West. Because, hey, that's why they call it Old Tucson. Ha-ha. <laughs> and Saturday, we're going to be out at Dewey Humboldt Town Library. Uh, that is on the way to Prescott. Uh, that's at 2735 South Corral Street in Humboldt. And we got T.M. Williams, who will be speaking up there about the SAR dogs as search and rescue. And she'll be talking about uh, why SAR dogs and why search and rescue is so important, especially in the forest regions of our world. And specifically in the clusters of missing people who are all around the forest regions and why that might be. So she's got a book that she had written, fictionalized, of course, based on these actual uh, missing people. And so uh, part of the book also includes some of these stories of the missing people and some of the oddities regarding that. And so we'll be out there at 10 a.m. on Saturday the 7th, 10 a.m. till 1. And right after that, my understanding is a Doctor Who day. So, hey, you know, Doctor Who Saturday's out there. Can you believe it? Even in Dewey Humboldt. So uh, the doctor gets everywhere, apparently. Then we've got, yeah, we've got so many things going on in March. So hang on, hang on to your hats. You know, Friday the 13th book sale, and that'll be at the uh, Mesa Second Friday, and also online. Uh, Arizona Publishing Services will have this, you know, Friday the 13th sale, and that's on all the or all the possible horror books that you'd want. So definitely take a look at my at my Facebook page, and I'll drop the outline. Uh, Tucson Festival Books. I'm going to be out there actually signing books. I know it's going to be romance. I got other books, but I'm only told I can take two, so I'm bringing the romance ones, and aren't you guys just so excited? So, Tucson Festival Books, we are in uh, base number 133. That's base number 133, and that's pretty close to the food court. So, you know, you get over the food court and then take a look around and try to find us. 133. We'll also be, uh, since I will be out of Tucson Festival Books, Al's going to be on his own next week. Or is it next week? Well, no, I don't know. Not next week, the week after. Sorry, 14th and 15th. Um, I'm not sure whether he'll be by himself next week. We'll see. Uh, then we got DEF CON, and uh, that's on the 21st and 22nd. Uh, we'll have a table out there. And on now another round table series on the 18th, and that's going to be on the other side of town. And that's at Denny's at 2801 North Black Canyon, and that's in Phoenix from 6 to 8. Again, there's very limited seating, and somebody's already sitting there along with me, so definitely come on out and uh, you know, pick my brain. Find out more about your book. Bring your book with you. Uh, bring your aspiring book. 
bring your short story. Ask me whether or not there's any any uh, need for short stories these days, and I'll give you a very decent answer because I have opinions. I know that's shocking. Then uh, again, on the fifteenth, eighteenth, uh, eighteenth, and then on DevCon the twenty-first and twenty-second. And then, and that's over at ASU West, by the way. Uh, it's on the other side of town in Glendale. Um, so, and then we got a show, the next space show again on the 22nd. And then on the 23rd is our regular monthly show for the Hay Girls. And Upper Strata is going to be our guest of our guest band, Upper Strata, and that's a local local band here. And that is going to be at the uh, again, the um, I went and went blank there. Uh, that's 8 p.m. starts 8 p.m. to 10, and of course it's a live show, so you can all come out. Uh, we will be at the Timeout Lounge. Thank you, and I remember that Timeout Lounge on uh, Mill Avenue and Southern in Tempe. That's Mill Avenue and Southern Timeout Lounge, place to be for music and for local music that we like to uh, help out, all these bands that are indie indie bands. Because, you know, we are an indie publisher, so we like to help out indie people. So, 8 to 10, um, 23rd, Mafia Mooncon, from my good friend Todd Van Hooser, is going to be on the 28th, starting, I believe, at 10 in the morning, and that's going to be way out there. It's cool out there and uh, good year. But, you know, Google Laffy Moon Con, and you'll find out how, you know, it's a, it is a gaming con, and but it also has, uh, you know, some other things going on there. They've got uh, some of their game masters who actually talk about their games that they developed, so definitely a place to be out there. And it's, you know, he's kept it very reasonable to get in uh, all day, uh, all day gaming, into the night, uh, all Saturday. And we'll be out there with the trebuchet and the baby trebuchet, introducing our baby tre- trebuchet for the first time. That'd be exciting. Um, we're shooting, shooting off mama and baby. And the kids will just have, they, they really loved having the, uh, the, the large one, the big one, the big mama, out there last year, and so we're bringing it back again, and it has spawned. So, <laughs> so we're bringing both out. Um, we we'll also have Geek Day the next day. Yeah, it's, I'm telling you, every weekend we have something. But uh, Lafayette Moon Con on 28th, we have Geek Day. We've just been invited back for the uh, Geek Day at the Phoenix Film Festival, and I don't have an address that I know. A, I'll have to find out that for you next time. The, the Geek Day at the Phoenix Film Festival, of course, uh, is typically, I believe, in Scottsdale over at the, um, uh, it's usually over at the uh, Harkins Hood, uh, Theater over there uh, at the 101. So you guys, I think, probably know where that is, but I'll get you an address. And... That's enough for the week, you know? I mean, my goodness, that's a whole month. Are you ready? I got four 
Al says he's got four more. So he's saying stretch it out. Oh my goodness, stretch it out. That means that be that puts me into April, people. Okay, that's put me into April. Um. Okay. We've got uh, the Arizona Women's Conference on at Scottsdale Community College. 9000 East Chaparral Road in Scottsdale. That's April 11th, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, I believe that I'm going to have looks at a one of the booths there, but I won't be there myself. And then Tim Williams has a marketing class. She had moved it from this from this month to April 11th. Uh, that will be at the Central Library again, the the Bar Library on Central. And I don't have time yet for that. So I'll get those from her uh, and let you guys know about it next time. Um, you know what we forgot? Oh, that's right. We're not doing, because of the DEF CON and all the other, all the weekend being booked up for March, I had to cancel the publishing marketing meetup for March. Sorry about that. So um, that's a marketing, the publishing and marketing meetup. We don't will not be meeting in March, but we will be meeting in April, and that'll be April 18th from 12:30 same bat channel, same bat place. And then on in May, so that's uh, yeah, that keeps it keeps it busy. Believe it or not, I have like one weekend in April, that's the fourth, but I got a wedding that day to go to. And I'd like to say congratulations to my cousin Nick, who finally found himself an awesome woman. Um, I know I'm totally embarrassing him if he's actually listening, but hey, way to go, cuz. So um, on May 2nd, we'll be up at Kingman Kabam Book Festival. That's Kingman, I know. It's crazy, huh? On the 29th, let's go backwards a little bit. On the 29th, we've got the Hey Girls Show. And according to my information, it's the Labor Party and Battered Suitcases. These these bands are getting strange names, you know that? Well, they've always been. One of the biggest bands was the Beatles. Why would you call a band after a bug? I don't know. They call the car after the bug. Wow. So, <laughs> so April 29th, apparently we have Labor Party and Battered Suitcases. I'm not quite sure what kind of band that is, but... It should be interesting. Uh, the the girls always bring uh, some really really awesome bands in, and uh, you know honestly, I have to say that I love the, the uniqueness of each and every one of them that that we've had on on KWOD Radio. So I'm really thankful to have them together. Ashes, I'm sorry, that's not on 29th. It's a move to Monday the 27th. So let me move that on my calendar so you guys will have it too. Bad Patty. Didn't change my dates. So the 27th uh, will be our Hey Girl show. And, of course, again, that's a timeout lounge, 8 p.m. tonight to 10 p.m., and that's a live show. So if you can't make it, you can listen to it on the radio. Um, also, it goes into, you know, an infinite loop, so you can listen to it at your leisure at any time. I know that's just what you want to you listen to of the ladies talking and uh, having all this awesome bands. Because you've got music. So what more could you want? You've got sexy women. You've got 
you've got bands, you've got music, you've got us helping out, uh, you know, all the independent bands in the community. What more could you possibly want other than maybe a little bit of beer and some pretzels? Which, you know, I, I even happen to like beer and pretzels. But only when I'm really in the mood, you know. So am I extending further or are we finally done? He's writing. He's actually writing something out. Stop it. So where else are we going to go? Um, it's just crazy. What do we got here? Done. Finally? Done. <laughs> and here I've gotten a May, man. <laughs> I'll have to refresh. Okay. I, I, can, I can refresh. There's optical dock right there. So, are you that? Hey. Hello, and good evening. We've been off for a couple of weeks uh, as we had to take care of a few things in a special Hey Girls show last week. Yeah. Um, and so we are back with a vengeance this week as we look at the latest news actually covering several weeks. So, um, back and, then, and then the phone number is 714-242-5145. The only thing we ask is remember that this is man's face, and this is exploration, not, we don't talk religion, <laughs> we don't talk politics, but that has something to do with man's face. So, um, we also will have, I'm having a little trouble getting my chat up here. Um, okay, you're going to have to do some stretching. <laughs> I am as soon as I get my chat up, everyone, we can... Uh, oh, okay. I'm having a little fun with the chat. And I can't put up your... Well, I'll tell you, all over the Internet this past week, we have been um, mourning the passing oh, yeah. Yeah, we can't. of Mr. Spock. Yeah, we, we have to talk about that. Um, I, I, I should have thought. Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Uh, has died at the age of 83 at his Los Angeles home. His wife, Susan Bay Nimoy, in a statement said that he uh, had sadly succumbed to end-stage chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, an illness he had been battling for the last year. Now, many people talk about Leonard Nimoy being famous for uh, his portrayal of the half-Vulcan Spock in Star Trek, the original series, and the following movies. But I'd like to remind people that, you know, as, as a couple of people across the web reminded us, that Leonard Nimoy also played in several other films for, over the years. Um, many of you will remember the scary-ass uh, film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the oh, original yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Leonard Nimoy uh, was one of the stars of that particular film. And I'll tell you what, of all the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and I've seen several, that original was the scariest film. i, I got to tell you. It, it was the scariest I version. I think the one was on that was the original. No? No. Yeah, it was. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it was. No, it wasn't. Where was the original? The original was black and white. That was black and white. One with... Leonard Nimoy was black and white. Okay. Well, obviously, I'm going to have to check on that. You're going to have to check it out. Yeah, because this was uh, this was a kick-ass film. 
Um, and um, in addition, Leonard played many other roles over the years, uh, particularly in the early years of his career. Yes, he did. And because I, he started I, as a child star. Did he really? Yeah, that he I did. didn't know. That yeah. I did not yeah. know. He, he was, well, on the star maybe, but um, yeah, actually, he was a star. So you had 1978 and 1956. And I believe he was in the 56. Sure. Pretty sure. Really? Yeah. Well, well, go go to go to the IMDb and look at the cast. Because I don't think they they mentioned him much, but I'm pretty sure he was in that film. I know he was in one version, but I thought it was the, the first original. But they, I, I remember that with. Uh, Not unless he was a child. No, 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 no. Keep in mind, he's 83. Yeah. In in uh, in the 50s, he would have been 20 something. Okay. We'll count him through. Yeah. Okay, come on, come on, come on. He would have been listed down a ways if he's in there. Well, shoot. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it was the one in the 70s, but I thought it was the... the, the you said it was one with... Uh, what's with who? Donald Sutherland. Yeah. And Donald was that, not this one. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. we got to get our information right, Oh, people. man. Well, you know, when you go and remaking films... Um, it's it's really tough to to keep track of stuff over the years. Did your chat finally come up? Yeah, oh, I was I put it up here. So. Oh, okay. So, yeah, oh, that yeah. looks different than the old one. Well, because it's big screen. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, the flash. May rest in peace. Um, yes, definitely. Live may, long may and prosper. May be searching through all all these, you know. Planets up there in the sky. And May he be traveling maybe. and visiting them all. I uh, should, should, I shouldn't have fun. I, I love that. that the oh yeah, the, he did that. He was a musician for many years. Yeah. Uh, of course, my favorite was uh, Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins in the. Um, <laughs> oh, what was that? That was on a TV time. show, as I recall. Yeah. It's recorded for a TV show. Yeah, yeah. And then he did it more recently with... Um, <laughs> he did it in a, well, a little clip of it in the commercial when he was sitting in the car. And who was he playing? He was playing opposite the new Spock yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were going to a golf match. Yeah, and so he was like singing to himself in the car, <laughs> as as all of us do. And he was singing his song, of mm -hmm. Bilbo Baggins. I just love it. Right. Especially in the end when he was like, yeah. <laughs> 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 so you love his sense of humor. And uh, yeah. just uh, and he played a leading man for many years, or not maybe not a leading man, but he played a main main character. He played character. a man. Well, you know he played a man. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I don't think he's ever played a woman. I don't think so either. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him in drag. That would be weird. That would be weird, that especially be weird. after Star Trek. I yeah, mean, that that would be too. A Vulcan weird. in drag. Now that's just <laughs> scary. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's just Nancy thing thought in my head now. Oh man. But uh Leonard Nimoy. Leonard uh Nimoy. wonderful, wonderful characters that he played over the years. Uh left such a wonderful legacy with his family. Um 
and also was a space geek himself. Yeah, there you go. See? Yeah, there 1978 he is. 1978 version. 1978 with Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. I didn't realize, remember Jeff Goldblum. Oh, and Veronica Cartwright was in that. You remember her. Yeah, yeah. Lost in Space. Oh, she was a young girl then. She was Penny in Lost yeah, in Space. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've seen so, all of them, I think. And, of course, Jeff Goldblum rose to fame in both uh, The Fly and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Earth yeah. Girls Easy. And you like that film, I remember. Earth Girls Are Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Being a girl, you love the bar scene. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Any girl doesn't like the bar scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but, anyway. Okay, okay, okay. Tongues, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Time to move on. Time to move on. Reminiscing about movies we've loved and loved to hate. Um, <laughs> moving on. Starting out with NASA News tonight. I love what, what what do you mean hang on? <laughs> oh, you gotta get over and find the Well, line. because he may be refreshed, so uh, Well, yeah. Okay. What the heck? <laughs> I need All right, come on. Okay. I'm sitting right next to you. Come on. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> well you said you had to find me. All right, go down yeah, and get yeah. the last one. Yeah. And by the way, this is more than our 29th episode because uh, we were actually online for several shows before we actually started recording it in the tool. Uh, Weren't yeah. we? Uh, I mean, I don't remember how long. How long? Uh, ago we you know, we'll have to, yeah, we'll have to go back and take a look. Yeah. Um, but uh, we were still discovering ourselves in those early shows. Well, figuring out what format. Yeah. 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 I, so you want me to put out the one about... Uh, Keep going down, 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 down past it where it says NASA. There you go. No, no, not that one. The next one. Well, yeah, it's Discovery. He's all, no, no, no. You don't need that. You don't need the link about Leonard Nimoy. If anybody sure. hasn't seen that on Facebook, the web, LinkedIn, Twitter, well, if you haven't him, seen it, they're it living under anyway. a rock on the moon. I gave it to him anyway. They got it anyway. <laughs> I only got one link. I, there were just so many links oh, I know. over the week. I gave I gave um, a lot of them on, on Facebook, so yeah. as I reported on the pretty quickly. I mean, you would have had to have been living under a rock on Mars to not know about Leonard Nimoy's yeah, death hey, this uh, year. You know, even week. some of the teachers yesterday uh, knew about it. Well, of course they did. They didn't live under a rock, apparently. No. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, all right. So we're first up. All right, here we go. Getting started. In a recent public is not always in sync with space advocates. In a Monmouth University poll finds that most Americans feel the nation's 1960s space program gave us long-lasting benefits, and many say increased spending on the space program today would be a good investment. However, less than half of them support spending billions of dollars specifically to send astronauts back to the moon or to other planets, the program that is currently in the works at NASA. Now, interesting list of reluctance is similar to the public mood in the 60s. Now, when you look at the two time periods and you look polls done in both both periods, you find that a lot of adults um, just, I mean, we care, but we don't. We care, but we don't want to see uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars going to send a couple of guys to Mars or the moon for some rocks some pictures and some scientific yeah, knowledge. Yeah, well, we want to see a real investment. I mean, some return on it, you know. 
Well, true. And, and while science has a certain amount of return on an investment, it's not the kind of return on investment that I think most of us, uh, as was coined a while back, orphans of Apollo, uh, many of us true space geeks, uh, those of us feeling abandoned by NASA, and more importantly, our Congress for many years. Um, now, keeping that in mind, uh, that poll from Monmouth University was conducted by telephone in December of uh, 2014 of 1,008 adults by phone. Now, one thing that I have to uh, think about that is, and now statistically that was supposed to be a reasonable poll, but 1,000 people out of 3 billion, or 300 million, excuse me, got to get my numbers right. I mean, that, that that just doesn't seem like a big enough statistical sampling. Because I happen to, I know that I've talked to people, and you can see people on Facebook who are really gung-ho about the government spending billions of dollars to send a couple of people to Mars. You know, so I, I don't know. I, I, polls often make me a little uh, leery. But anyway, moving on with NASA news, they're gearing up to reassemble the space station. Now, of course, the headline caught my attention. I thought, wait a minute. The space station's already up there. It's already assembled. They've been working on it. Um, but this uh, this past week, they've gone through two spacewalks, I believe, so far. Uh, and they're basically um, replacing components of the docking ports and rewiring a lot of it so that the newer SpaceX and um, uh, not, uh, Boeing... Orion craft can dock properly for the commercial crew. Got to get my feet. That's that's real important. Yeah, and and and. I've seen that movie. Yeah, now the station they finished in 2011, uh, and they're hoping to make sure that the two ships, the 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 Boeing, and the uh, no, I'm not getting it right. Uh, yeah, it is. It's the Boeing CST 100, and the um, SpaceX Dragon V2 that will be delivering astronauts sometime starting next year in 2016, we hope. Uh, NASA hopes to continue its cooperation on the ISS with its international partners until 2024. Now, NASA is ready to continue to cooperate with its ISS partners, including Russia, for at least nine more years. The agency um, is ready to continue to cooperate um, Oh, I doubled up a little bit here. Okay, according to NASA, it's providing a unique environment for research and space operations that will be necessary for conducting human missions deeper into space. The space station will also contribute significantly to the expansion of commercial activity in low Earth orbit. Now, along with these spacewalks they've been doing this this past week, on this last spacewalk, they, had a, they discovered a water leak um, inside the helmet at the end of the otherwise flawless spacewalk outside the ISS on Wednesday. Now, the water could be seen in Vert's helmet uh, in a video captured by his crewmates, and he was able to make ripples by blowing on the water. Um, and they've actually, despite that water leak, uh, NASA has approved the Sunday spacewalk, which was today, uh, despite water leak in the helmet. Now, they'll venture back out for, for a walk uh, to... Uh, Man, uh, to install additional cable. Now, ma mission managers believe they understand the quirks with this older suit and insist, insist it is safe to use on the spacewalk. Um, envisioning the moon 
as a launch pad to explore the outer system. Now, Arlen Cross, C-R-O-T-T-S, has been an iconoclast among his peers in the world of lunar science. His beliefs that the moon must have water and could possibly supply all the elements necessary to sustain life were considered unconventional, to say the least. Now, Kratz has published a new book titled The New Moon, Water Exploration and Future Habitation. Explores his innovative ideas and many more in meticulous detail, providing hard scientific findings that topple decades-old ideas about the moon's development and structure. Now, this guy predicted we'd find water on the moon years ago, was ostracized for it for many years, um, and now um, is being vindicated in a lot of ways for a lot of his ideas. Space Station's commercial uter users, uters, oh boy, are hitting <laughs> bottlenecks. And, you know, this is an interesting story because it brings up uh, the viability of commercial operations in space. Um, NASA continues to encourage commercial use of the ISS. Some potential customers and the companies supporting them are running into problems making full use of it. Those who are trying to use the station today, though, often find themselves in a log channel. We have problems now with UpMass for the first time, said Jeff Renamber, Managing Director of NanoRacks, referring to the transportation of cargo to the ISS. Our commercial demand is pushing the system. The current problem is mostly due to the October loss of an orbital ADK Cygnus cargo vehicle when its Antares launch vehicle failed shortly after liftoff. The company plans to launch the next Cygnus in late 2015 on a ULA Atlas V before resuming launches in 2016 on a re-engined Antares. Until then, NASA is relying primarily on SpaceX Dragon craft for transporting cargo to the station. Now, again on station news, the next space station crew is preparing for one year in space. Now, this is the new project that uh, um, Expedition 43 is intensively training for the upcoming orbital mission, U.S.-Russian crew. NASA astronaut Scott Kelly, along with Russian cosmonauts Mikhail and Kornienko, will be a special mission. They'll perform the first one-year stay at the station. Recently, the crew passed the exams at the Gagarin Research and Testing Cosmonaut Training Center in Star City, Russia, in preparation. So, lots going on up there. That should be interesting because of the... Well, yeah, and of course, well, yeah, because Scott and his brother, uh, his brother will be on Earth while Scott uh, takes his tour on the ISS, and they're going to compare notes in a similar way uh, that the 3D parts have been doing a twin thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. They've had a 3D printer on Earth and a 3D printer on the station, and so they're, they've 3D printed many parts. And uh, the last, in fact, the last dragon, we'll have a story coming up talking about this in a little bit, is has brought down some of those printed parts. So they'll be comparing those in the coming months to see what differences there are between orbital 3D printing and earthbound 3D printing. Very cool. Uh, in, uh, in Congress this past week, uh, U.S. needs a Mars colony, Buzz Aldrin says. The United States must do more than just plant a flag on Mars if it wants to continue as a leader in the field of space exploration. Apollo 11 moonwalker Buzz Aldrin told the senators, In my opinion, there is no more convincing way to demonstrate American leadership for the remainder of this century than to commit to a permanent presence on Mars. Now, he told this to the Senate Subcommittee on Space Science Competitiveness during the hearing back on February 24th. Now, NASA's spacecraft 
uh, arrives at the Dwarf Planet series this week with some great photos and lots of new mysteries. Um, the Dawn spacecraft will begin orbiting this Mir spacecraft this week, ending a deep space chase that lasted two and a half years to get there. It's scheduled to reach Ceres, the largest body in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, on Thursday, March 5th. The probe's been headed for Ceres since September 2012 when it departed Vesta, the asteroid belt's second biggest denizen. In international space news, uh, apparently the Lunar X Prize winner may be decided as the result of an actual race on the moon. It could be interesting. We'd be on for an actual race in space. Two competitors for the Google Lunar X Prize say they will buddy up to get their rovers to the moon by the end of next year. Astrobiotics, space logistics firm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, announced plans in December to launch the competition's first mission from Cape Canaveral in time for the deadline at the end of 26, sending its rover Andy up aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. 2016. Did I, what did I say? 2016. Ah, should be 20, 2016. I tell you what, these 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 thousand numbers for years is this is getting old. We should we should start with a year zero soon. We really should. <laughs> I when when, the when we establish the first settlement, there we go. That'll that should be year be year, year zero of the new diaspora. Space Frontier Foundation and National Space Society announced the formation of the Alliance for Space Development. Okay, here we go, folks. Another space advocacy organization, as if another we didn't have another one. Yeah, Space Frontier Foundation and the National Space Society yeah, announced the formation of the Alliance for Space Development is dedicated to influencing space policy toward the goals of space development and settlement. At press time, the Lifeboat Foundation, Mars Society, Mars Foundation, Space Development Steering Committee, Space Tourism Society, Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, Students on Capitol Hill, Tea Party in Space, and the Texas Space Alliance have joined. Tea Party in Space. Yeah, don't even get me started on that one. <laughs> have joined the ASD. Um, I, now, I, was, I wish I was an artist, man, because I could see in the <laughs> I could see a cartoonist with all these different logos in a cartoon. Start, drawing off the tea. Oh, yeah. Out of the spaceship going to the moon. There you go. There you go. There you go. All right. <laughs> On February 19th and 20th, 2015, a diverse group of over 100 space leaders from academia, government, and industry came together at the Pioneering Space National Summit in Washington, D.C., setting aside previous debates and focusing on shared interests. Together, they achieved consensus and forged the following statement. The long-term goal of the human spaceflight and exploration program of the United States is to expand permanent human presence beyond low-Earth orbit and to do so in a way that will enable human settlement and a thriving space economy. This will be best achieved through public-private partnerships and international collaboration. Yeehaw! Okay, again, this is, now keep in mind, this announcement, this declaration, was not part of the Space Frontier and National ADS, uh, ASD Alliance. They're two separate events, two separate organizations. Um, the space declaration is the result of a semi-clandestine meeting in Washington, Ooh, closed doors, Ooh. by invitation only, of movers and shakers. Well, you know, and that was the impression. As word got out that the meeting was going to be taking place, there was a lot of activity on the web. People were PO'd that they couldn't go and contribute. And the response was, was said that, 
the reason, part of the reasoning for it, at least what I read in the comments, was that they wanted people who were movers, shakers, decision makers so to be like able to come to consensus. Not to a certain degree, but at the same time. If you're not a mover, shaker, you can't come. Well, maybe so. A little bit of elitism, perhaps. And that's that's what came across. But in reality, uh, it's interesting that this is the best declaration they could come up with. <laughs> I'm not, you know what? That, I, that speaks for itself, it, man. It really does. It really does. Um, uh, we are, and, and, and I have to admit, that this sounds more like a political statement yeah. than it does I know. Well, a yeah. statement of direction. And sadly, this is, as it. as I've said before in commentary, uh, sadly, most of the space advocate societies have become political organizations more and more focused on pushing dollars from Congress to NASA to do the work than actually doing much work for themselves. Now, mind you, I make exceptions for the Mars Society, which has two desert, uh, has two Mars analog research stations here on Earth, one in Nova Scotia, one in Utah, and also the Planetary Society, which has actually sent up their own satellites. So these two organizations actually are doing some real, real technical oh, work. Oh, that deserves funding. <laughs> All right, moving along. Okay, we've heard on and off articles and, and news reports of Russia uh, choosing to back out of the ISS in 2020, choosing to stay on until 2024, then backing off, and then coming back. And, Either take your ball yeah, and go or don't. Take your ball and go or don't. But, and, and basically it looks like they finally made a statement. Uh, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, says it will support U.S. plans to keep the ISS operating through 2024, but then wants to split off three still-to-be-launched modules to form a new independent orbital outpost. The configuration of a multi-purpose lab module, a docking module, a scientific energy module allows us to build an orbital station to ensure Russia's access to outer space. Now, in addition, the very next module to be launched to the space station will be finished in February 2016. Russia's uh, Krunichev State Research Production Space Center will finish assembling the new module for the ISS in February 2016. The center's acting chief said this past Wednesday, we'll finish equipping the module in February, then the module will be transferred to the Russian Rocket Space Corporation, RSC Energia, for final adjustments. After that, it's going to be ready to be launched and subsequently integrated into the ISS. And it's shaping now. The 2016 is going to be one whale of a big year. We're going to have new Everybody. modules at the ISS. We're going to be partway through the year-long mission. Yeah. We're going to be having the uh, space taxis from both Dragon and Orion uh, firing up and delivering astronauts back and forth. If it all comes uh, to pass, it's going, it comes to pass, it's going to be a better year. Um, now, in moving on to private space, or what has uh, been coined. We've got a, quite a few things coming in here, guys. Good. Oh, yeah. We've, we've got quite a bit, quite a few references here. Also in the news this week, in fact, competing with Leonard Nimoy's death over the last couple of weeks uh, leading up to his death, Mars One. How realistic is it? Here's what we don't know. Now, based on current technical, logistical, financial, and practical consideration, it's unlikely any of the 100 semifinalists are going to go to Mars. Not because going to Mars is impossible. NASA still wants to do it by the 2030s. And for Mars One to send astronauts to Mars by 2024 
would therefore be an incredible, beautiful feat. Sidney Doe at MIT recently talked with Popular Mechanics after the publication of MIT's controversial but detailed feasibility study into the Mars One mission. Now, <clears throat> many of us watched the banter back and forth where, as uh, Bas Landsdorf responded to that report, and also um, then uh, the MIT team responded back. So there's been a lot of back and forth about it, and basically the root stuff, the concern from MIT is that the uh, greenhouse area is going to produce so much oxygen that it's going to become both a fire hazard and that the guys could, uh, the astronaut team could actually uh, literally drown in oxygen. Now, I'm not sure how that would work, but basically they say the system as designed is going to overproduce oxygen, and unless they have a way of uh, extracting some of it off, on a regular basis, they're going to have troubles. Uh, I think they figured about 100 days, or 68 days, 68 days uh, before the uh, habitat starts running into troubles. Also, Mars uh, One ran into problems when Endemol axes plans for a reality TV show that would record life of the Mars One explorers. However, they're still planning to do a documentary. Now, this following the announcements last week of, it li of the list of 100 people who will train on Earth for a one-way mission to the Red Planet in 2025, and with all these issues, has just a few months to decide whether it will launch its first unmanned mission to Mars in 2018. If it misses that deadline, the entire high-risk enterprise will be delayed another two years. And now, just for those of you who may not understand why, the reason for that delay is, is that they're targeting the Mars opposition window that occurs approximately every 18 months to two years when Mars and Earth actually come kind of close together. And that's the window that they want to hit when they launch um, their their settlement option. Closer together, the less time it takes. Absolutely. The, the, the target time is about six months, give or take, with the chemical rockets that we have available to us today. Now, we've got several links here. Um, and people who are really down on the Mars One thing, and, and I have to admit, um, the primary link here at Daily Mail, um, or no, uh, where's, where's, where's the one? Uh, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Um, one of these links. Actually, you missed one. Yeah. Am I? Yeah. I guess I, I am. Five of them. Is well, that's what I'm showing science? here. I don't remember which one Guardian, it was. BuzzFeed. Anyway, one of the links actually itemizes um, some of the issues that they face. They said there would be no new technology, and yet they haven't defined the modifications necessary to the Dragon, which is pictured as a landing craft. Um, they haven't defined the modifications that are going to be necessary to make it viable for the for the six month journey. They haven't identified the development of the inflatable greenhouse. They haven't identified where these things are, what their status is, or where they're going to come from. And additionally, they haven't identified where their funding's coming from when they've got a little over half a million when they need five billion. So a lot of lot of issues that they face uh, to overcome in, in the very in, in just a few years coming up. Uh, space Station, 3D printed items. I knew there was an article on this. And seedlings return in the belly of a dragon. Newly 3, 3D printed wrenches, data to improve cooling systems, protein crystals, and seed samples returned February 10th aboard SpaceX's fifth contracted resupply mission to the ISS. Researchers will use the samples and data returned to improve scientific studies on Earth, 
and build on research that will enable space exploration. Now, in a, this next piece is actually, uh, it's both a video and an article. I encourage you to check this out because it really encapsulates a lot of the recent progress by a lot of the new space companies, not just Stratolaunch, but this is also our first look at uh, the Stratolaunch facility um, and so forth where they're building the largest aircraft on the planet. I mean, the wing the wingspan on this is longer than a football field, end to end. So this is, this is an incredible ship. Yeah, um, video we looked at. Local earlier. news team in Mojave, KGET, snagged some of the first images of the carrier aircraft, the enormous satellite launching airplane uh, at Mojave, California-based scale composites is building for Paul Allen's Stratolaunch system. The carrier aircraft will serve as a mothership for an air-launched multi-state booster under development at Orbital ATK. The video features several other companies based in or around Mojave, Maston Space Systems and their lunar landers, XCOR with the Lynx, the spaceship company's second spaceship to mothership for Virgin Galactic. So check out that link. A very, very entertaining and informative video with that. Now, Dragon's upcoming launch uh, in, uh, where is it? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, said, uh, bye -bye. SES signs up for launch with the more powerful, upgraded Falcon 9 engines. Communications payload owned by Luxembourg-based satellite operator SES will ride the first launch of an upgraded Falcon 9 rocket in mid-2015. Now, the decision comes after a review of the risks of launching the SES satellite with rocket engines operating at almost 20% higher thrust for the first time. They're really going to start pushing these engines to their full capacity soon. So that's going to be exciting. Um, SES satellites could be the first to launch uh, from the Texas spaceport. Two communication satellites, as we mentioned before, owned by SES, are booked to fly into orbit, possibly from South Texas, on a pair of Falcon 9 rockets. Oh, no, this says in 2017. That's interesting. Maybe these are a different set of satellites. Must be, because this is the first article is about the upgraded Falcon engines and a single satellite, whereas this one for 2017 is a pair of satellites that are being prepped um, to launch um, uh, in launch the two satellites, SES-14 and 16, nine days after the company unveiled an order for three spacecraft to be manufactured by Airbus and Space Airbus Defense in Space and Boeing Satellite Systems and Orbital ATK. And speaking of Orbital ATK, they're aiming for a March 2016 Antares rocket launch restart with new engines. The newly merged company, Orbital ATK, is aiming to restart launches of their upgraded Antares rocket in March of 2016 using completely new engines. Following the catastrophic explosion on October 28th that destroyed the rocket seconds after blastoff from a Virginia launch pad. And Terriers were carrying a Cygnus module loaded with supplies on a critical space station resupply mission for NASA. Now we move on to our next segment, Related Tech. In the Related Tech segment, we look at uh, technologies announced or updated uh, in the industries that either are directly related to manned space flight or may have an impact on it as we move forward. Our first up, the building blocks of the future defy logic. And you got to see the picture of this thing. Thanks to their peculiar internal geometry, oxetic materials grow wider when stretched. You stretched a rubber band before, right? And you stretch it, it gets thinner in the middle. Well, oxetic materials do the opposite. They get whiter in the middle. 
After confounding scientists for decades, University of Malta researchers are now developing mathematical models to explain the unusual behavior of these logic-defying materials, unlocking a plethora of applications that could change the way we envision the future forever. Now, they have the amazing property of negative Poisson ratio, becoming fatter when stretched. This comes from its structure within the multi-developed model, which in the multi-developed model is represented by a series of connected squares. And there's a photo on the, on the site to check out, technically called rigid rotating subunits. When subunits turn relative to one another, the material's density lowers, but its thickness increases. Whoa. I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> That's like we weren't going to go to the bar at the. Girl, oh know. yeah, oh yeah. I can see another movie movie shaping up in that <laughs> in things uh, between the tongue and between the tongue and and getting wider when when you stretch it. Okay. Anyway, next up, Australia researchers create the world's first 3D printed jet engines. We've been following 3D printing tech as it's been developing and growing very, very rapidly in the yeah, industry. Definitely. Australian researchers said Thursday they have created two jet engines using 3D printing in what is described as a world first that has attracted the interest of major manufacturers and engineering firms. The machines, produced using the template of a gas turbine engine from French aircraft maker Safran, which supplies Airbus and Boeing, demonstrated the potential 3D printing had to produce high-quality products researchers from Melbourne's Monash University set. And, you know, the picture is, is an intriguing image of, of a jet engine. I don't think I've ever seen a jet engine with, with the uh, cowling in the serrated shape that yeah. uh, they show in that image. So check that article out. Uh, lots, of, lots of interesting updates. Um, also in our related tech, we're moving um, space law up into related tech. And... Um, instead of covering it under uh, our commentary, uh, primarily because uh, this is this is an ongoing thing, and it really does affect manned space travel. Moon space law, legal debates, worlds around private lunar ventures. A recent action by the US FAA is stirring up some moon dust in a legal debate about private companies setting up shop on a moon. In late 2014, the FAA office of the Associate Administrator for Commercial Space responded favorably to a Bigelow Aerospace payload review request. Now, the query related to commercial development of the moon. Some view the verdict as a necessary step toward creating a legal framework for businesses to set up shop on the moon, but it's also clear more legal conversations are in the offing. Now, I, I, got, I studied this in detail, and one of the wrinkles that comes into play here is the tax law regarding income earned outside the U.S. Okay. Well, you think that's bad? I, you know, I'm sorry, but we're we're as a as a country, we're trying to regulate the moon. Who do how do we think we are? I realize that, and that's going to be a real issue. I mean, shades of the Tea Party you mentioned earlier. Um, <laughs> imagine them going up to the ISS or from the moon, yeah. throwing stuff into space, and it. All that tea splattering all over the ISS. I mean, it's brown, you know. Yeah, I know. That would be scary. <laughs> Shredded brown. Yeah. Shredded brown makes space station looks like a bunch of floating turds. That would be That's, scary. Yeah. Of course, they plan to flush it in 2024, so who cares? Anyway, 
back to the real world. All right. Yeah, we talked about the tax law. We're um, the tax law actually has been stretched to the point that if you are a United States citizen working in another country outside the U.S., but you are employed by a company that is based in the United States, your income, your paycheck is taxable under U.S. law. And the U.S. and IRS will go after you with no holes barred. Well, apparently, there was an opinion on the web a few weeks ago that equated that under that law, the IRS theoretically could tax workers on the moon or Mars or the asteroids if they are employed by a company based in the United States. You know what I see happening soon? I see a whole bunch of companies moving their headquarters, or at least their accounting department, into other countries on Earth just to avoid that taxation and all the heartaches that that's going to create. Um, so, you know, we want to keep a good idea on, on this stuff. I, I personally, as like you, I think the U.S. government is way overextending itself, just like uh, King George, was it, in at the time of the American Revolution, pushed his uh, limits way too far. Um, and here we are, the U.S. is trying to assert its rule over something even farther than we were from England. Come on, you should learn from history, guys. Moving on. That would be about time. <laughs> Moving on, Connie Radar defends the moon from Apollo 11 in a retro sci-fi short film. What would the first woman on the moon do if she saw a crew of astronauts attempting to claim the moon for themselves? She tried to shoot them down with her space guns, of course. The short film Over the Moon on Vimeo details the fictional lunar adventures of Dr. Connie Radar. Over the Moon chronicles Radar attempting to stop the first moon landing by a crew of American astronauts. Really? I got to do that one. I, I stumbled upon this just the other day. I just had to include it in our thing. Um, it is about manned space flight, and it talks about Apollo. Okay. Uh, in this science fiction world, Radar landed on the lunar surface in 57, well before the 69 Apollo 11 moon landing. The seven-minute video is based on the Dr. Connie Radar Ph.D. comic strip, and comes complete with a robot and some sleazy astronauts bouncing around and cooking hot dogs. That's got to be a riot. That has sleazy got to be a riot. Sleazy astronauts bouncing around and cooking hot, hot dogs. dogs. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of snide remarks we can go into Oh, well, my. I mean, you're just waiting for it, man. All righty. Okay. It's time for our, our mid-show break. I'm going to turn the time back over to you for station identification and all those good stuff. And our phone number. So just to remind everybody, before I go to get a drink, it's uh, our call-in number is 714-242-5145. As we, 714-242-5145. As we prepare to move into our commentary <laughs> really segment of the show. Drink, I do, man. My, my tongue and lips are just, they're all starting to act strange already. So uh, stick around. We'll be back after the break. Uh, with our commentary section, we'll be talking about a new and exciting announcement from us. We'll see you in a few minutes. Hey, this is KWOD Radio. And we're going to give you a little bit of music here. I know. This is what I call our music interlude before our commentary. So and sit back and enjoy a few minutes of music. And we will be right back. As soon as I find the one that I'm allowed to do. I have a lot of stuff here from the Hey Girl show, but that's from that's from that show, and I 
There we go. Okay, we'll be right back.
Patricia says, <laughs> the next place show is Al and Joe, and I am Joe. And here is Al, and it is, we're talking about man's face again, and we are uh, doing our commentary section, and again, the call number is 714-242-5145. Again, that is long distance call, so if you use your phone, be fine your cell phone, but if you use anything else, you will be charged for the call. So, with that, we're back. Welcome back. Many of you who have been listening have heard us um, talk about uh, not only the, the news items that we talk about here on the show are geared toward manned spaceflight, and more importantly, to the idea of getting past this planting flags and and bringing rocks back. Um, manned spaceflight has been punctuated by um, this particular point. Uh, John F. Kennedy's original admonition to send a man to the moon and bring him safely home. Um, the thing of it is, there's a flaw in this process. Throughout this year, we've been hearing um, commentators and newsmen and article writers, advocates, as well as um, complainers about the space program, all sharing a common thread. And that thread is that there lack, there is in space development today, a legitimate lack of a vision for the colonization and settlement of space by humans. Now, we've had offerings by many people over the years that amount to, if we look at Mars One and Mars Inspiration, Mars Inspiration is a flyby, but Mars One uh, the proposal by Bigelow Aerospace to drop several of their modules on the moon for for a base. NASA has uh, commissioned artists many times over the decades to paint a picture of what a lunar base might look like once it's established. And they talk about many different things for getting that base established. But all in all, when we talk about the moon, it's always about something that NASA is going to send up robots to dig ditches to drop basically motorhomes into these ditches, and then those robots are going to cover them up, and then our astronauts are going to go and spend two weeks in them and then come home for a year. Um, this is basically what the lunar base plan is. When we look at the Mars settlements or the Mars bases, um, NASA hasn't gone quite that far, but we have one a vision from both SpaceX and from Mars One um, that proffer the idea of Dragon crew capsules landing on Mars, connect, connecting together into a reasonable habitat ring, as it were, perhaps a kind of like the wagon train ring we would see in the movies where you'd uh, circle up and establish the place that you'd have to live. Well, and I know that, that Buzz Aldrin uh, just 
last year, I believe it was, uh, released a new book uh, talking about a new vision for space. But they all are lacking something as part of that vision. A vision is a wonderful thing. And um, we had authors over the last 150 years who have um, demonstrated uh, a vision for the future. We had um, the work, the book, The Brick Moon of Edward Everett Hale, 1922 to 1909. In 1869, he wrote a book for the Atlantic Monthly talking about a brick sphere that ended up traveling to the moon. In 1977, T.A. Heppenheimer wrote the book Colonies in Space on an impressive vision of a huge Taurus hosting over 2,000 people. And in 1992, Marshall Savage published his treatise, The Millennial Project, Colonizing the Galaxy in 80 Steps, which... Uh, wonderfully uh, triggered the formation of the Living Universe Foundation, which sadly he parted company from uh, a few years later, um, but still exists in, in one form or another today. The Oregon L5 Society still exists. They were founded way back when to uh, further a vision for uh, space. And yet, most of these visions are heavy on engineering expectations based on John F. Kennedy's admonition to send astronauts and then bring them safely home. Sadly, I don't believe anybody has taken the approach of going beyond what the Mars One program is proposing. Bass Landorf's Mars One organization is attempting to send people on a one-way trip to Mars. But the problems, as outlined in one of the articles that we talked about earlier, revolve around the idea of supply. They revolve around the idea of survival. The money, the, the expense, the fuel to use heavy lift rockets to boost huge chunks to send supplies to an outpost on Mars is near $5 billion per trip. It is unsustainable. Without a space-borne source of supplies, any space-borne colony is doomed to fail. That's just the numbers. It will not work trying to be supplied from Earth, let alone the idea of as we send more people on these $5 billion trips uh, at a maximum of between four and five people per trip, um, never mind the idea of the fact that economic, not only economically is it unsustainable, but when you're talking about hauling um, hundreds of thousands of gallons of fresh water from a planet that is already struggling to maintain the freshwater supplies we already have? Okay, guys, this picture just gets worse. But what if we took a different approach? What if in the course of our planning, we said we're not going to resupply? 
we'll send more people. But there's ways to send people without spending $5 billion. Well, we are announcing today the ability to pre-order a new book. The book is entitled Earthseed, Settling Space in This Generation. I spent the last five years researching everything I could about settlement, not just space settlement, but how did settlement occur when the pilgrims came across? How did settlement occur when Americans went west in the 1800s? How did settlement occur? What are the dynamics? What are the economics? What are the logistical requirements of sending people great distances with minimal supplies and yet helping them to survive? Truly, I do not believe that anybody has taken that time to do that research, to really look at what it takes to start a diaspora. Um, and so I decided to find out. The story goes like this. Um, several years ago, um, I had the wonderful opportunity to meet Rick Tomlinson at a Space Access meeting here. I was there. You were there? Yeah. yeah. And I had in my hands a, a little five-slide presentation I was going to pitch him about a plan to use the space shuttle to land on the moon. Well, not to land on the moon, but to deliver stuff to the moon. Now, it, it was an ambitious plan. I mean, um, you, you, it wasn't about whether it had wings or not. It wasn't about the sheer mass of the craft. It was about taking advantage of that mass and using it to carry not just what was inside the cargo compartment, but to strap on several other landing craft, cargo craft, onto those wings to use them, to use that mass, to use that structural strength for something and send this Goliath to lunar orbit and have it stay there as an orbiting way station. Well, sadly, it... For me, I was heartbroken. Mr. Tomlinson did not have any interest in actually viewing my brief presentation. And as we now know, the shuttle program was actually retired just a couple of years after that. And in the course of the ensuing research, I realized that the space shuttle, even in that configuration, Goliath as it was, would not have been a practical use of the five shuttlecraft that we had uh, we now have learned there have been articles describing the issues that face the space shuttle and, and the retrofits and all of the challenges that were being faced, as well as the economic costs. And so I, I started to delve deep into what would it really take to start an, 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 a, a, a railroad, an Oregon Trail, as it were, to the moon and then Mars. And, and as we launched and followed the Dawn spacecraft on its way to Ceres, I realized that Ceres represents another destination. In fact, a stopping off point between Mars and the moons of Jupiter, which represent two more destinations. Callisto and Ganymede represent two reasonably sized celestial objects that are rocky in nature that provide uh, a kind of an environment that we could find resources to support an ongoing settlement program 
And then, much to my surprise, Saturn's moon Titan offers another destination. In order to look at the idea of settling space, in order to look at the idea of a multi-planetary species, we need to look at multiple destinations. The idea of just going to Mars isn't going to be enough. And the realities of looking at a settlement paradigm made me realize that you can't just say, well, we're going to go to Mars on heavy lift rockets and we're going to provide supplies until they get on their feet. They're not going to get on their feet for decades. So you have to take a look at it from a completely different perspective. You've got to look at it not from resupply, but what can you send with them? What tools, what materials, and how do you make them arrive with the capacity for not only self-sufficiency, but for growth. Any settlement that goes to a new destination must be able to grow. And sadly, folks, every one of these plans that assumes that astronauts are going to be able to live in these cramped capsules for years on end Give me a break. They're going to go start graving mad in the first year, and we're going to have an off-planet loony bin with nobody living there anymore. I saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> We've had several films that look at the prospects of the isolation issues that we face in leaving Earth. I mean, you you, you got to understand, we're, we live on a planet that has so much open spaces, when we look at the settlement diasporas that have occurred just in recent history of human history, when you look at the pilgrims and the ensuing migration that occurred following that that established this wonderful country, the U.S. of A., when you then look at the expansion that occurred in the 18, uh, mid to late 1800s of uh, people moving west, and then you look at uh, the events that led up to the establishment of the country of Australia as well. Um, these countries were founded by hardy people who, in many cases, were forced to go. They didn't really want to go. No, but they went because they weren't given a choice, either because of slavery, because they were prisoners of, of um, the English Biden. system, yeah. um, or because they were slaves. Um, and lastly, or they were products of the society in which they lived, the economic downturns of, of the 615 and 1600s and later the 1700s, the challenges of the eastern colony seaboard uh, and the economic downturns and the glut of workers in the mid-1800s that pushed people west, and the challenges that England suffered in the 1700s in having to offload their prisoners to Australia. Uh, even though their empire, as big as it was, they needed a place to handle all of that stuff. So in, in the course of that research, I began to, to build this vision that looks beyond the tech. It looks past the flag waving. It looks beyond the nationalism it goes beyond the sweeping visions and clean 
shiny potential of the NASA and the engineered programs to look at what what are we really going to deal with in the first missions. A lot of people talk about rovers going to the moon and going to Mars and doing a lot of the setup for us. But I got to tell you, in fact, today I was talking to a gentleman who is part of a large multinational corporation that does huge projects. These companies, they do mining. I mean, we're talking like in Arizona, people are, are vaguely familiar with Phelps Dodge, probably the biggest mining consortium here in the state. And in fact, I believe they were bought out just a few years ago by somebody else. But these big consortiums, just to give you a, a point of reference, folks, only now, in the last few years, have they been able to develop the technology to use robots. Only now, in the past few years. And NASA and engineers are hoping to launch robots to work in space in the next 10 years? Give me a break. Not going to happen. Not only that, but NASA's current funding stretch is reducing. The money's not there. Their very first massive-scale robot, Robonaut 2, made it to the ISS last year. And I haven't seen anything in the news, and, and listeners, correct me, send me a link if you can find one. Of this robonaut has not yet been tasked with anything yet. Now he did get a pair of legs this last uh, this year. Oh, that's nice. Really freaky looking legs. Yeah, many, many, many joints. Uh, <laughs> uh, look yeah, more like monkey be, legs, I'll might, tell you. Might come in handy. But yeah, and 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 I'm sure it will. But here's the thing: NASA moves too slow. Even even Russia moves too slow. Any government sponsored program is going to move. Too slow. People are going to die before we get supplies to them. People are going to die depending on a shiny new engineering habitat that ain't going to get there and ain't going to serve them for any length of time. In the book, I talk about one of the challenges, and, and here's the perspective that I ended up realizing. What Bigelow and NASA and all these organizations want to do is they want to take the, the essentials of a $40,000 motorhome, use a heavy lift rocket to launch it to the moon or perhaps to Mars. When it gets there, they want to have robots dig a ditch, drop this motorhome in the ditch, bury it, and then have a couple of guys, three or four, live in it for two weeks and then come home. I'm sorry, but the sheer economics of that doesn't work. No, I'm not sorry, actually. It's unrealistic, unsustainable, and economically a disaster. Buzz Aldrin's vision of last year. Again, high on vision, high on wonderful NASA-supportive, shiny, clean environment in a settlement. Okay, guys, come on, give me a break here. Somebody's got to be playing a violin somewhere. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. The reality is that in all of history, 
every single settlement effort met with the loss of nearly 75% of the total number of immigrants that left. 75% of the people that left died on the way. Whether you look at the um, immigrants coming from Europe to America, from the 1600s all the way up to the 1800s, when you look at the people who went to Australia, when you look at the people who went west from the original 13 colonies, nearly 75% of those people died en route. And even at that, when you look at the quality of life that these people took on in that settlement effort, it was not the shining technology of the day, the wonderful clothes and horses and carriages and, and, and machines that grew out of these diaspora. Um, they couldn't take all of the food items and the live nurseries and, and things that they wanted to take with them to assure that they could survive. They couldn't haul the industrial capacity machinery uh, albeit of a steam age, to help them survive in the western states. They had to carry only what they could carry and what could conceivably fit in their handcart, their duffel, their Conestoga wagon. Yeah. Now, some of you may be familiar with the pamphlet that we released several years back called the Homestead Project, on which we threw a couple of rocket nozzles on the back of a Conestoga wagon and moon or bust on it, in which I outlined the general vision that I was working on of the major book. I invite you. It's on sale at Amazon, 99 cents, I believe. Um, check out the pamphlet. It'll give you a general idea of the nature and the content of the actual book and the vision that I have of going into space. And that vision revolves around one thing that we can do. We can set up a seed. Now keep in mind the idea of a seed. Just, just the vision of this seed that you, you, you plant it in the ground, and it takes nourishment from that ground, and it grows. But the interesting thing about a seed is that not only does it grow and flourish in and of its own as a single life form, but it generates other seeds. Whether it's um, the mycelium of a mushroom plant that spreads under the ground, or the bamboo that rises above the dirt to spread its leaves and, 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 and roots um, in all directions, or the apple tree that grows this tall, strong uh, bush of leaves and, and, and fruit that drops on the ground and sprouts new seeds, or even the dandelion that sprouts as a grass or a weed, as you will, grows this wonderful, furry little ball full of seeds that catch the wind, and off they go to a new destination. Of all of these examples, my cover, if you look at it, took on the image and the visage of the dandelion. And the dandelion has these little bitty, teeny tiny, fragile looking gossamer little seeds. 
And yet this is one of the most pernicious, prolific, vicious little weeds that we have, at least in this country. But they're also the most fun. They are fun. Kids love to blow. Kids love to blow on them, blow the little seeds all over the place. Of course, they catch in your socks as you're walking through the meadows. Yeah. You know. But we have to look at space settlement. Not as this technological, grandiose vision of a slow and plotting future of two and four people at a time. But we have to be able to send groups of, of seven or or even even as, as, at one point in the book, I, I describe a way that we could retrofit um, a way to send 35 or even 50 people on a single Falcon 9 launch into orbit. These are real possibilities. They are cramped. I grant you. And these people may not, and most assuredly, will not be astronauts. They will be settlers. But if you look at the history of, of settlement, whether it be the pilgrims, the slaves, the convicts, or the people huddled in their Conestoga wagon, families as large as six or seven people huddled in a tiny Conestoga wagon in the middle of the prairie, Facing the winter. This is the way humanity has expanded. Not in the gleaming ships. By the time we get to the gleaming uh, ships that cross the ocean, these are cruise liners. To the aircraft that are carrying hundreds of people at a time, these are short trip vehicles. If our rockets are going to carry our species into space... These rockets have to carry groups of people in the tens or eventually into hundreds into space. And then those people at their various destinations need to grow, reproduce, and spawn new seeds to other destinations. Settling space is not a technological achievement. Settling space is the natural expansion of our species. And until we as a species embrace this concept, that opening the frontier kills a lot of people, but in the ensuing rush to survive, we will raise far more people and far more different species in the new age to come in destinations that I have outlined of the moon first that then supplies the trip to Mars that then supplies the trip to Ceres that can then supply a trip outward further to Callisto then Ganymede and then Titan and conceivably folks we're only talking a couple of years between each destination Conceivably, I believe that 50 years from now, we could see the culmination of our research in the launch of a star drive ship from Saturn's moon Titan headed outward. Earth seed, settling space in this generation, not 50 years, not 150, this generation, the generation that grew up with Apollo the generation that grew up with the space shuttle, space
Sputnik. We saw this. This is our legacy to seed and to populate our solar system. Now is the time setting space in this generation. I outlined just how it could work. Not just the gleaming end result like NASA and artists have done in the past, but the hardcore funding, the ships, the way it'll work, the, the logistics of getting the equipment, the supplies, the seeds, what to take, what plants are we going to have to carry that are going to serve more than one purpose, addressing the issues of either over-oxygenating or, or over-carbon dioxing our habitats, and how are we going to address these issues? Because i got to tell you, folks, technology can't do it. Only nature can provide the foundation and the structure for a seed that can take people and using the resources we find at these destinations, build a biome that as a seed can sprout and grow and send seeds further outward. It is only by earth seed that humankind can seed first our solar system and then the stars multiple destinations, an understanding of what it takes to be a settler, a farmer, and finally, an eye to that second star to the right. Straight on to home. Straight on to home. I invite you to check out the book, folks. Check out the uh, pamphlet. They're both online, available through Amazon. We're in pre-orders. And just to give you a little um, heads up. They can also get it a little cheaper through the, the pre-order. Get it direct from the publisher. Well, there you go. For twelve eighty-eight, compared to going through Amazon for nineteen ninety-five. There you go. Now, I want you to understand, listeners, Earthseed is not just a book. Already under construction, I have a demonstration trailer that we will be taking on a tour first throughout Arizona later this summer, demonstrating just some of the low-tech items that we will need to take with us on this settlement mission. Later this year, I hope to start touring and speaking on these things. We'll be launching a website this month, and hopefully we'll start building building people who would like to join us. It is my belief, crackpot that I might be, <laughs> but I have a wonderful vision in my mind. In the same way that this country was settled by down-to-earth people, in the same way that we conquered space and landed men on the moon and brought them home safely, in the same way that the automobile, the airplane, the luxury liner, mining, space, solar energy, steam energy, we as a species have made leaps and bounds over the centuries, never confined to the spaces we find ourselves in, but always expanding, always growing, always pushing the limits that we face. And always starting from a seed.
So too, the Earth Seed Organization will start as a seed. This book is our vision. But understand, this is no technological vision like you've ever seen before. This is going to be a rompous ride, folks. I invite your comments. We'll have, like I say, we're going to have a website up before the end of the month. The technology trailer will be uh, featured in a blog. We'll be talking about how it was built, what, what it was done, uh, the additions to it, um, and some of the mistakes I made in the learning process. Um, <clears throat> we'll be talking about some exciting technologies that were developed as part of this trailer, giving and keeping in mind some of the issues that have been raised with uh, the Mars One project and some of the things that they face. Keep in mind, folks, this is not a low-tech only approach. We're still going to need the engineers and the rocket scientists and the gleaming ships that SpaceX and Boeing and uh, Orbital are all building. We're going to need those ships. Those sexy ships. Those sexy ships. We're going to need those ships. And here's the rub. SpaceX is the only company that I know of that is mass producing these suckers or dang near. They roll off a, a booster and, a, and, a, and a, uh, a capsule, what, one every couple of months? And shoot them off and try it again. They're shoot them off and try it again. And the only company that's using reusable tech. It's going to be that reusable tech that we're going to need. Keep it cheaper. It is my fervent belief that within two years, we could have nearly 30 people living on the moon. And two years after that, another 30 could be on their way to Mars, if not living there. This isn't a gleaming vision, but a pragmatic one, a realistic one, born of the frustrations that those of us as orphans of Apollo have suffered these past 40 years. So join us and watch closely as we bring you further updates on future shows of the next space. Remember, that's Earthsea, settling space in this generation. Are we done? Yeah. Stick a fork in it. Stick a fork in it. It's Sunday, and you guys, y'all, you know, just enjoy the rest of your night. And what do you usually say? Be good? I've got my mouth full. Hold on, sucker. <laughs> Chewing my ice to wet down that tongue and make it flap some more. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody remember. Be bad. No, what's it? Be safe, be bad, and be good at it. That's us the next base show with Alan Joe and this is K Rod Radio signing out for the week. See you next time, next week on Sunday again at seven PM uh Mountain Standard Time uh, for the next base show with Alan Joe. And we will give you a brand new week of this Russia's thing going on in the uh, renewable space. And uh, until then, K-Rod Radio signing out.